Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank Raycon for supporting my podcast. Get crisp, powerful beats at half the price of other premium audio brands. And right now, Raycon is offering my audience 15% off all their products. And here's what you've got to do to get it. Go to buyraycon.com gold. Well, the markets had a second day on Friday to react to the surprisingly bad, much worse than expected inflation numbers that we got on Thursday. May CPI vastly exceeding expectations. The headline number coming in 50% above expectations and the core coming in 75% above expectations. We've got year over year headline CPI at 5%. If you annualize the first five months of the year, we're running at 6.5% for 2021. If you just annualize the last month, I think we're at 7.5%. These are very bad numbers. The numbers are much worse than expected. And what these numbers really should have done was cast some serious doubt on the idea that this inflation is transitory. After all, we've got five consecutive months in 2021 where the inflation numbers have come out hotter than all of the experts were anticipating, yet those same experts not only are continuing to hold on to this fantasy that what we're seeing is transitory, but the fact is that this worse than expected inflation report seems to have reinforced that idea. In other words, instead of these worse-than-expected numbers causing people to doubt the idea that inflation is transitory, it seems to have reinforced the idea. People seem to be even more confident now 
that inflation is transitory than they were before we got all this really bad data. I mean, first of all, look at the reaction in the markets. Stock market was up on Friday. In fact, the growth stocks did better than the value stocks, which is not what you would expect with an inflationary environment. You would expect the opposite. So people were buying growth rather than value in the aftermath of these numbers. The dollar had a pretty big rise on Friday. The dollar index was up 0.435 to close at 90 spot 51, closing positive on the week. So during a week where you have much worse than expected inflation data, meaning the US dollar is losing purchasing power faster than people thought, and that prompted people to want to buy dollars. Despite the fact that they're losing value faster, they wanted to buy them more. The same perverse reaction in gold. Gold actually dropped about $20 on Friday. Now, silver held up a little better. I think it was only down one or two cents, something like that. But $20 drop in gold following yesterday's worse than expected inflation numbers. In fact, the big drop yesterday caused gold to actually end the week down about 15 bucks. The other market that seems to be confounding logic is the bond market. Yields were relatively flat on Friday, but they fell on Thursday in direct response to these worse than expected inflation numbers. And in fact, on the week, we saw a pretty significant drop in long-term bond yields despite the much worse than expected inflation. And inflation is the number one enemy of the bond buyer because inflation is eroding away the value of your principal. Forget about the value of your coupons. That's being eroded too. But in particular, the principal that is not going to be repaid for another 10 to 30 years. Yet despite the fact that we're staring at 5 or 6% inflation, bond investors were excited about gobbling up 10-year treasuries that don't even yield 1.5%. That's 25% of the inflation rate, yet people are more interested in buying those bonds now than they were before they were surprised with this worse-than-expected inflation numbers. The reality is, when you have inflation, what really should be happening is that investors should be selling dollars because they're losing value. They should be selling bonds even faster because they represent dollars in the future, which will be worth even less than dollars in the present. And you should be buying gold as a hedge against that inflation. Now, I think in an inflationary environment, equities could also be something that people should be buying. So the fact that stocks went up is not really a shock especially if inflation is not going to be fought by the Fed. I mean, if the markets believed that the Fed was going to aggressively fight off inflation with tight monetary policy, then that should be bad for stocks, especially when they're as overvalued as they are right now. But if you believe that inflation is not going to be fought, that it is going to be continued unchecked, or that the Fed will stay forever behind the inflation curve, then it would make sense to buy stocks. But stocks would only be rising in a nominal sense, meaning stocks would be going up more than the value of the dollar was going down. And so when you're measuring stocks 
in a depreciating dollar, it looks like those stocks are going up. But what's really happening is the dollar that you're using to price those stocks are going down. In real terms, in an unchecked inflationary environment, the real value of stocks, especially when you're starting from, again, such an overvalued level like we're at now, the real value of stocks measured in terms of gold should be coming down. But instead, during the week where we got much worse than expected inflation news, not only did the price of stocks go up in terms of dollars, but the price of stocks went up even more in terms of gold because the price of gold fell. So none of these reactions make any sense. Much of it has to do with the manipulation of the bond market by central banks, But a lot of it, I think, also just has to do with short-term technical factors. I mean, maybe there were some people who expected worse-than-expected inflation news, and they bought the rumor, and then they sold the fact. I mean, sometimes in the short run, markets can confound the fundamentals. But in the long run, they will not do that. And so in the long run, anybody who actually understands the significance of what's going on would be taking advantage of these market moves to sell dollars into the rally and buy gold into the dip because the bigger moves obviously are going to be down in the dollar, way down in U.S. treasuries, which represent future payments of dollars and a big move up in gold. But, you know, you might be wondering, how is it possible, right, that we could get this worse than expected inflation news Yet everybody seems to be more convinced than ever that the inflation is transitory. And that's because I think all of the financial media was pretty much doing a full court press to try to convince everybody that what they're seeing is an aberration and that the Fed is correct in that the inflation we're experiencing is just a transitory result of the reopening And it's all going to disappear. And so the Fed has got it right. It is transitory. And so we don't have to worry. Now, of course, the main reason that the Federal Reserve wants to pretend that the inflation problem is transitory is because they have absolutely no ability to do anything about it. Right. They can't contain inflation because they put themselves in that box. The country now has so much debt thanks to their prior monetary mistakes. We've got all this debt because rates have been so low for so long that if the Fed were to actually raise interest rates to fight inflation, they would create a much worse financial crisis than the one that they helped create in 2008. Only this time, there couldn't even be any bailouts because the Fed would be fighting inflation and therefore raising rates and therefore unable to finance any government bailout effort Uh, for any segment of the economy. So obviously that's politically off the table. So since the Fed can't fight inflation, it has to pretend that inflation is not a threat. If it admitted that though, if the Fed actually admitted that it can't fight inflation, then that would be an even bigger problem. So the last thing it can do is tell the truth because it knows, like Jack Nicholson knew, we can't handle the truth. So they spoon feed us a lie. And I think the media is helping the government to get the public to swallow that spoon-fed lie with all this nonsense analysis. And I was listening to and reading articles where they were actually dissecting the CPI and going, you know, category by category 
and trying to explain why, well, oh, this is clearly transitory, right? They would take a look at the big spike in used car prices and they'd say, oh, well, you know, this is just a result of the fact that new cars weren't being produced during the shutdown. And so there was a shortage of new cars. And so that put a premium on used cars. And so this is all transitory. So we can ignore that. And oh, look at what's happening with energy. Well, this is because of a backlog. There were some production slowdowns there. And oh, now because there were some other delays here that, oh, this is all transitory or look at these big increases in shipping costs. Well, this is clearly related to the reopening and all the pent up demand and and the big bottleneck. And oh, and look at this rise in food prices. Well, clearly this is, we don't have to worry about this because this is self-correcting because, you know, the farmers are just going to plant more food. And so this is just a supply problem. It's got nothing to do with inflation. And then, you know, farmers are going to plant more crops and, you know, this is going to take care of it. And I even heard one guy trying to claim that, look, this is not about inflation. This is all a good thing. See, prices are just going up because consumers have all this money. And so that's the reason that prices are going up. And that's a good thing because consumers have all this savings and they have all their stimulus money. And so they're spending money and prices are going up. But, you know, of course, it's got nothing to do with inflation, which is laughable because that is exactly inflation. Prices are going up because people have all this money. And the problem is they didn't earn the money producing stuff. They got the money because the Fed printed it. And of course, if you get a bunch of money and you try to buy stuff, the prices are going to go up. But this was completely laughable because, first of all, they have to go over so many different categories of prices that are going up and then explain why each and every one of them doesn't matter and it's all transitory. I mean, let's say there was just one outlier, just one component that was way up and that skewed everything. Maybe you can make an argument that, okay, there's this one thing uh, that was transitory. But if almost every category of price is way up and then you're going to try to create some excuse for everything and say, look, we can ignore all of these price increases because it's all transitory. It is completely ridiculous. You know, how can all of these people, right? So-called economists too, a lot of these guys got PhDs in economics, looking at this data and just assuming that it's all just transitory. It's all just related to COVID and completely ignore the massive money printing all this deficit spending, all this money that's being printed, and just assume it's irrelevant, that it has absolutely no impact on prices, right? If this really were true, if you really could print as much money as you wanted and it wouldn't affect prices, well, then print even more. Why not make everybody rich? Give everybody a million dollars and then we can all be rich and we can all buy stuff. Well, the reason you can't do that is because you can't buy stuff that hasn't been produced. So if you just give people more money and there's no more stuff to buy, then the only thing that can happen is the price of that stuff has to go up. And that's exactly what we're experiencing now. The government has given everybody a bunch of money to buy the stuff that's there. And so the stuff that's there has to go up in price because there's no more stuff to buy. All money does is allow you to allocate the goods and services that have already been produced. And so the more money that there is in circulation, the higher the prices for the goods and services in order to balance out the economy. Everything has to equal. Consumption can't exceed production. And so the way you work it out is price. The more money there is in circulation, the higher prices have to be. But why nobody can seem to make this connection 
it is absolutely ridiculous. And to me, it just seems like it's almost like a conspiracy between the media and the government to push this false narrative to get consumers, to get investors to actually believe something so completely ridiculous. You know, to me, it, it made me think of, you know, a kid that's coming home with a bad report card, you know, trying to convince his parents that it's really not as bad as the report card reads. I mean, let's say a kid's coming home and he's, you know, he's got five D's and one B, right? He's got this horrible report card, yet he's trying to explain to his parents, you know, why it's really not that bad. And so let's say, you know, he's got a D in English and a D in math and one in science, a D in, in, in history and maybe foreign language. He's got a D in French. He's got all these Ds. And he's explaining like, well, you know, I really shouldn't have got a D here and all oh, my teacher this and well, this was happened this. And he, he's got some real clever excuse about why he got such a bad grade in every one of these classes. Then, of course, he has one B in physical education, right? And he's got a, and he said, that's the one that counts, you know? So just forget about all those Ds. In fact, I really should have got an A in PE. I mean, I don't even know. It shouldn't even be a B. It should have been an A. So in reality, I mean, I basically got straight A's on this report card. Just ignore all these Ds and just, you know, I got all A's basically. And 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 the parents actually buying this BS from the kid who's trying to rationalize his horrible report card. That's really what we've got. If you look at the CPI as a report card, not just a report card on the government, but more importantly, it's a report card on the Fed, right? Because the Fed's mandate is low inflation, right? It claims that its mandate is 2% inflation. Well, if it's 6% inflation, that's not just a D. The Fed is failing monetary policy. The Fed has got an F, and it's trying to convince investors in the public that it's really got an A. And the way it's doing that is by claiming, well, you know, it's all transitory. So you can throw out car prices, you can throw out hotels, airlines, food, transportation, energy, just throw all this stuff out. And here, find this, here's one thing that didn't go up. Just focus on that. And, and we've got an A. Hopefully this is the last time you hear this ad, because with Chime Checking Account, Features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts. Or at least grab yourself an extra morning latte this month. Join millions of Chime members who work on their financial progress with fee-free overdraft and no monthly fees. When you find new ways to save, you can reach your financial goals easier and still have the occasional treat. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. That's chime.com slash goals24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. You know, the other subject, too, that the Fed is flunking is its balance sheet, right? It's got an F there, too. If you look at the numbers now, the Fed's balance sheet is now 
trillion dollars, right? That's double the size it swelled to following the 2008 financial crisis, really before they started to do the taper, $8 trillion. The Fed is failing balance sheet 101, right? You don't want your balance sheet to be $8 trillion, especially since, remember back in the day when the Fed said they were going to shrink their balance sheet? That was their goal when it was $4 trillion? They were initially supposed to shrink the balance sheet back down to where it was pre 2008 financial crisis levels, which was below $1 trillion. So their goal was to be below $1 trillion, and now they're at $8 trillion and rising. So there's another F. But another problem, too, that you can attribute to the Fed, and I talked about this on my last podcast, and this is the fact that you have a lot of very wealthy Americans, some of the wealthiest Americans, don't really pay a lot of income taxes. Certainly in certain years, they may not pay any income taxes at all or a very, very small uh, uh, percentage of the amount of money they're actually potentially earning or spending is being paid in tax. And one of the main reasons that a lot of very wealthy people are able to avoid tax is because rather than earning income and spending it, they borrow money and they spend that. And so there's a big difference between spending money that you earn and spending money that you borrow because when you earn money, you pay taxes on it before you get to spend it. So you know, let's say you earn money and you're paying 30% tax. Well, you only have 70 cents on the dollar to spend because 30 cents went to the government. But if you borrow a dollar and spend it, well, you can borrow, you can spend the whole dollar Uh, because you didn't actually earn it. Because an income tax is a tax on money you earn. It's not a tax on money you borrow, right? So if somebody decides they want to buy a house and they take on a mortgage, let's say for $300,000 and borrow that in one year, the IRS doesn't say, oh, you have $300,000 in income because you borrowed that money and the IRS doesn't tax it because you have to pay the money back. You've got a mortgage, You, you owe it. So you didn't actually earn it. You have to repay it. If the government were to tax you on the money you borrowed to buy your house, nobody could take out a mortgage because nobody could afford to pay the tax on the money they borrow. But the way the rich people or very rich people are doing this is they are borrowing money against their assets. In many cases, publicly traded stocks. A lot of CEOs of companies have been doing this for years They pledge their stock as collateral, and then they borrow money against that appreciated value, and then they use that to support their lifestyles. They they buy all sorts of things with the money that they borrow against their stock portfolios. Now, what is enabling this? The Fed. Without the Fed, this couldn't be happening because Fed monetary policy, which is artificially low interest rates, is specifically designed to boost asset prices, the very assets that the very rich are holding on to. So the Fed is conducting monetary policy to inflate asset prices, while at the same time keeping interest rates at rock bottom. So now you own a lot of highly appreciated stock, and now you can borrow money at very, very low rates of interest against that stock and you can spend it, and you can have all sorts of things, and you can live a pretty high lifestyle spending lots of money that you borrowed 
but never have to pay a dime in income taxes because you didn't actually have any income. I mean, yes, your stock's appreciated, and so you have more wealth, but you haven't generated any income because you haven't liquidated any of that stock. The only income that you get is the dividends that your stocks are paying. And this is the beauty of this levered up trade. If your company's stock that you own is paying a dividend that is higher than the margin rate to borrow against that stock, which is a pretty low hurdle now, given how low interest rates are, then there's no cost to the loan because the loan pays for itself. There is a positive carry. And as long as the stock is always going up and the stocks will always go up as long as the Fed keeps printing money and keeps interest rates at zero, then the money you borrow never really has to be repaid and you can live off of debt in perpetuity. But the only reason this happens is because of the Federal Reserve. Now, of course, the Federal Reserve has some help from the U.S. government, which is running these big deficits that need to be monetized or that the Fed is monetizing in order to prevent the government from having to be honest with the public and you know tell the truth and cut spending and all that. But in order to perpetuate this big government, the Federal Reserve cooperates and keeps interest rates low, inflates asset bubbles, and makes it really cheap for people that own a lot of stock to borrow against the stock instead of selling it. If they had to sell the stock, then they would generate income and have to pay a tax. But because interest rates are so low, why sell the stock, hold it, it'll keep going up, borrow the money instead, and live off of that. And the same thing happens with real estate. A lot of people that own a lot of real estate, they never sell the real estate, they just borrow against it, and they live off of that money. But borrowed money is not income, and therefore it's not taxable. But if the Fed were to do the right thing and really raise interest rates, then two things would happen. One, asset prices would crash. And two, the cost of financing your margin would go way up. And that would actually force a lot of people who have been able to avoid paying income taxes for all these years by borrowing against the inflated value of their assets, that would actually force margin calls on a lot of these people. They would have to liquidate their stocks, and assuming they still had a gain because the markets would crash, then they would have to pay the income taxes. See, the solution isn't to try to come up with an unconstitutional wealth tax to get around the problem caused Uh, by the Fed creating inflation, just have the Fed stop creating inflation. Let's have honest money. Let's have interest rates that reflect the market, not the Fed. And let's have asset prices that reflect reality, earnings and dividend yield, not manipulated by artificially low interest rates. And that will solve the problem. In fact, you know what fixes this? A return to the gold standard. If we went back to the gold standard and had honest money and market interest rates, this problem would be solved and all these super rich people that aren't paying any income taxes would suddenly start paying income taxes. Bitcoin doesn't fix this. Gold does. Whether it's for work or play, a lot of us are going to be on the move again this summer. That's why I've teamed up with Raycon and I recommend their wireless earbuds. And now you can get 15% off your entire Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash gold. You know, whether you're listening to my podcast or just some of your favorite tunes, a pair of Raycon wireless earbuds in your ears can make all the difference. You get crisp, powerful beats 
at half the price of other premium audio brands. Raycons look great and they feel even better. They come in a range of colors and with customizable gel tips included for a comfortable in-ear fit. And Raycons are built to go wherever you do with quick and seamless Bluetooth pairing and a compact charging case. In fact, it's so simple, even my seven-year-old is able to do it. Raycons have 24-hour battery life, so you can take them wherever you go to work or for your workouts, which makes them an absolute must-have for your daily grind. So listen up. Raycon is offering 15% off all their products to my listeners, and here's all you've got to do to get the deal. Go to buyraycon.com gold. There you'll get 15% off your entire Raycon order, and it's such a good deal, you'll want to grab a pair and a spare. That's 15% off at buyraycon.com gold. You know, speaking about the IRS at income tax, I want to update everybody on a problem that I mentioned on my podcast, I think it was a couple of years ago. I mean, a lot of time has gone by. And during this time period, I've gotten emails from people and they're asking me, hey, whatever happened to that $1.4 million penalty? Well, I'm going to tell you what happened to it now because I finally got a resolution this week from the IRS. So what happened was I set up a foreign trust years ago, I think back in 2013 or 2014. And the first asset that I placed in this trust was my residence in Connecticut, my house. I put it into this trust. Now, what I didn't realize at the time is whenever you have a foreign trust, and this one was based out of the Cook Islands, and there are a lot of reasons to have trusts that are based in the Cook Islands. Um, tax avoidance has absolutely nothing to do with it. And I wasn't avoiding any taxes by placing this house into this trust. In fact, the house doesn't generate any income. Uh, it's just a, a residential property that's not rented out. So anyway, I put the house in there, really part of an estate planning, uh, asset protection type of program. And so I put it in there. And there are two forms that have to be filed annually. And they have different due dates. So it's kind of confusing by design. You have to file every year that you have an offshore trust, you have to file a form with the IRS telling them that A, you have the trust and what's in the trust. Then you have to file another form that tells the IRS anything you took out and anything you put in. But of course, the forms basically convey the exact same information. Because if every year you have to tell the government exactly what's in the trust, well, all they have to do is look at the forms each year and whatever's different is what you put in or took out. And what's even more obvious is the first year. So the first year of my trust, I file one form that says I've got a trust and there's a house in it. And then I file another form that says I put this house into my trust. So both of these forms contain the exact same information but the IRS requires that I file both. Well, anyway, they did not get filed on time or one of them did not get filed on time. Initially, the IRS claimed that both of them were filed late, but it turned out that one of them wasn't filed late because the IRS forgot to give me an extension that I had qualified for. So one of the two penalties was immediately waived. But the second penalty was not waived. And that penalty was $1.4 million. Now, there was no tax that was owed. 
It was just an informational form where I was providing the government with information that it already had on the other form that I filed timely, right? Because it's the same information. But the penalty on this one is 35% of the value of what's in the trust, which in this case was $4 million because it was the house from Connecticut. And so I had a $1.4 million penalty. And at this point, I owed over one and a half million because I had incurred over $100,000 in interest costs on the unpaid penalty, right? So it's interest, not on an amount that I owed because I didn't actually owe any amount. I'm paying interest on this penalty. So when I found out about this, I'm like, this is crazy. How can the penalty be this high just for filing the form late? I mean, it's not like I didn't file it at all. I filed it. The government didn't tell me to file it. I filed it on my own. We discovered that we didn't file it on time, and then we filed it, and my penalty was $1.4 million. Now, my initial response to this was, okay, well, let's let's appeal it. So the first thing we did is we wrote back to explain what happened, and we asked that they abate the penalty. Well, my initial appeal following the normal route for getting a fine like this, my initial appeal was actually rejected. The IRS said, no, 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 you still owe the penalty. You filed it late. Send us the $1.4 million plus interest. You know, here's an envelope. Just, you know, put a check in here and, you know, this is what you owe. And this, I thought, was outrageous because the first thing that I thought about was the Eighth Amendment to the United States Constitution, right? Because not a lot of people talk about the Eighth Amendment. It's not one of the ones that gets a lot of attention, but it's a very short amendment. And here's what it reads. I'll just read the whole thing because it's so short. Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishment inflicted. That's it. Now, obviously, what I'm focusing on here is excessive fines imposed. So the U.S. government is not allowed to impose an excessive fine. And by extension, none of the state governments either, because the Bill of Rights applies to the states now, as well as the federal government, based on the 14th Amendment. So we can't have any excessive fines imposed. Well, how can this fine not be excessive? $1.4 million for filing a form, an informative form, in which no taxes due, filing it late. $1.4 million penalty for that. Clearly, this has got to be an excessive fine. Now, I know the Constitution doesn't define excessive, but if this isn't excessive, I don't know what is. In fact, I looked up the Webster's Dictionary definition of the word excessive, and here's what it says. Going beyond what is usual, normal, or proper, right? So to me, there is nothing normal, usual, or proper about a $1.4 million fine for filing something late. In fact, you could look at the actual penalties for filing other forms late. If you file your 1040 late and you don't owe a tax, which would be the situation here, I filed a form late for which there was no tax due. If you file your 1040 late and you don't owe any money, there's no penalty at all. You could file a year late, two years late, five years late, doesn't matter how late you file, if there is no money due, 
There's no penalty for filing your 1040 late. Well, if there's no penalty for actually filing the 1040 late, why should there be a penalty for filing this form late and especially 1.4 million? But even if you owe money, even if you owe money and you file late, the penalty is 5% of the unpaid amount per month, not to exceed 25% of the total. So let's say somebody earns $100,000 and at the end of the year, when they go to file their 1040, they owe 2,000 more in taxes, you know, because obviously taxes are withheld from your pay and then you do your 1040 and it turns out you owe $2,000. The biggest fine you could pay in that case would be 500 bucks, which would be 25% of the 2,000. Now you'd also pay interest on the 2,000, but that's a small amount of money, obviously, because interest rates are low, but the penalty is $500. It's not 35% of the $100,000 that you earned because that would be the equivalent, right? Could you imagine if somebody files their taxes late and they had 100,000 in income and the late fee for filing late was $35,000, 35% of your income, which is probably more than the tax itself. I mean, maybe somebody that earns $100,000, their total income tax rate after their deductions might only be $20,000, right, for the whole year. Yet the penalty for filing late would be $35,000. I mean, nobody would allow that. What about property taxes? I checked in the state of Connecticut, and if you file your property tax and pay it late, the penalty is one half of 1% of the amount due per month. So if you had a million dollar house and let's say the property tax was $15,000, if you paid it a year late, you would owe 6% of $15,000 would be your late penalty. And so that would be $900. Now, imagine if the penalty for filing and paying your property tax late was the same as this form on a foreign trust, the penalty would be 35% of the value of the house. Well, if your house was worth $1 million, the penalty for paying your property tax late would be $350,000, even though the total amount of the tax was only $15,000, right? So clearly, if you compare what the IRS, the fine that the U.S. government tried to impose on me for filing this form late clearly meets the Webster's dictionary definition of excessive, which was going beyond what is usual, normal, or proper. So to me, I thought I have got a fantastic constitutional argument as to why this fine needs to be struck down by the courts null and void as being an unconstitutional violation of my Eighth Amendment right not to have an excessive fine imposed on me. So I was all ready to go to fight this thing and maybe take it all the way up to the Supreme Court if I had to, except I don't because on my second appeal, administrative appeal within the IRS, where my accountants or tax attorneys got to discuss this, with the examiners, the IRS finally issued a letter to me letting them know that they were going to abate in full the $1.4 million penalty and all related interest. So the IRS actually cut me a break here and they decided not to impose the penalty that by their own code, 
they had a right to do. I mean, they could have basically told me to take a hike. You were late. You got to pay the penalty. But the IRS does have a procedure. It's a first offense where, I, you know, I've, I've never asked for this kind of relief before. You know, it was inadvertent. I mean, ignorance is supposedly no excuse. You know, we screwed up. My accountant screwed up. I had all sorts of circumstances. And so we were able to appeal to the IRS's sense of equity, right? And they were like, okay, we'll let you, we'll let you go this time, right? I mean, we're, we're going to let you off the hook. And so I'm glad to be off the hook. Uh, you know, it would have been interesting to appeal this and to test it to see if there's any way the court would say, no, this isn't excessive. Because if this fine isn't excessive, then no fine is excessive. And the Eighth Amendment means nothing with respect to excessive fines. But I really did not want to appeal it because the only way to really appeal it is to pay the tax first. I mean, I could have gone to tax court right? Which I, and I'm not even sure if I had the ability because you only have 90 days, I think from a deficiency to go to tax court. And this penalty was imposed against me a couple of years ago. So I don't even know if I still had time for tax court, but I obviously could go to an appeals court, a regular district court. But in order to do that, you got to pay the tax in full. So for me to be able to try to challenge the constitutionality, of this excessive fine. I would have to pay the excessive fine in full, right? Give the government one and a half million dollars. Then the procedure is I demand that they return the money. I have to give them six months to give it back. And after six months time period, if they haven't given it back, only then can I take my case to court. And of course, if I lose in a district court, I can appeal it. And ultimately I could have appealed it all the way up to the Supreme Court which I probably would have had to do. And the Supreme Court could just decide not even to hear my appeal. So I may not have even had an opportunity to argue unless, of course, a lower court might have ruled in my favor, in which case the IRS could have appealed it. But my thinking would have been, had I prevailed at the district level, the IRS would not appeal it because if they appealed it and then they lost, they would have risked precedent. You see, what the IRS does is all these lower court decisions, if they're not in their favor, they just ignore them. So they pretend they don't exist. I mean, they exist for me, right? But they're not precedent for anybody else. But if the IRS appeals it and it actually goes to the Supreme Court and they lose, well, then it's precedent for everybody. So what they might have thought was, okay, we didn't get the money from Peter, but we're not going to appeal it because the risk is if we lose, we're not going to get it from anybody because I'm sure there are people who are paying these ridiculous unconstitutional fees because nobody has actually challenged it in court. But in any event, I don't have to do that because the IRS let me off the hook. And for a while, I was a little worried that they weren't going to do that. After all, I am Peter Schiff. I'm not exactly their favorite guy. I mean, look who my father was. So, you know, I was a little worried that, you know, they, they weren't going to want to do any favors uh, for Peter Schiff. So at least I got to give the IRS credit for that. You know, I don't give the IRS credit for much, but at least in this respect, they treated me fairly and did not impose this clearly unconstitutional excessive fine on me. They abated the penalty. And so at least I got to thank them for that. Uh, and so they're not as bad as they could have been in this circumstance. Anyway, I want to finish up the podcast, though, with one more personal saga that I just went through. And, and the real reason I want to bring it up is to illustrate how ridiculous the government's 
COVID response has actually been, right? So we have a trip planned to Switzerland. Uh, my family and I are going there. I've enrolled my two younger children in a one-month program there. It's the same school that they go through in Puerto Rico. The school actually started in Switzerland, and so we're going to enroll them there in the Swiss school. So it's a combination, you know, camp, summer school. So we're going to spend a month there uh, in Lugano, Switzerland. And so initially, right, I when I booked these tickets months and months ago, I booked my flights directly into Lugano via Zurich, and I was flying on Swiss Air. And I thought it was simpler to just, you know, fly directly into Switzerland, not to involve any other countries. Well, that ended up being a mistake, which cost me a lot of money, because as of now, Switzerland still does not allow American citizens to fly directly into Switzerland from the United States. So I had to cancel my flight into Zurich and reroute so that I could enter Switzerland from Italy. So what I had to do was fly into Frankfurt and then transfer into Milan, and then I've got a car service driving me up through the border, and that's allowed. So I can, as an American, I can come into Switzerland driving from Italy because I'm entering Switzerland from another EU country. I just can't go there directly from the United States. And the reason I didn't fly directly into Milan is it was ridiculously expensive to do that. Uh, it was a much better deal to go via Frankfurt. So that's what I ended up doing. You know, in fact, the airfares had gone up so much between the time that I originally booked a trip and the time that I wanted to rebook it that I originally thought about just canceling my flight to Zurich, keeping my return because I had a really good deal there and just using some of the points that I have to just get a ticket to Milan. But the cost to cancel the outbound tickets and keep the return was $20,000. It was actually going to cost me $20,000 more not to fly to Zurich than it was to fly there. So obviously I wasn't going to pay $20,000 to do that. To change the route to go through Milan, that was an extra $30,000. So I was able to go via Frankfurt for just an extra $6,500. So clearly that was my best option. And that's the one that I chose. But the real drama did not start until this week. I mean, having to rebook the flights and pay a little bit more money, I mean, it was a pain in the butt, but nothing like what we just experienced with the passports. So my seven-year-old's passport is expired. And you know, when you have a minor under 16, the passports are only good for five years, so they expire a lot. And the difference between a minor's passport and an adult passport is you can renew an adult passport through the mail. You don't have to show up at a location to do it. You can do it through the mail. But that's not the case for a minor. You've got to be in person. The minor has to be there along with his parents. Although I later found out that one parent can go if the other parent signs a notarized uh, power of attorney uh, to the parent that shows up. But at least one parent must be there with the minor in person. Now, because of COVID, right, they shut down a lot of the locations where you could apply in person. And so there's not that many. And because of social distancing rules, which have still not been relaxed, 
the appointments at these locations are extremely limited because they're not letting that many people in at one time. For example, there isn't a single facility anywhere in the state of Alaska. So even under a best case scenario, if you want to take your kids on a summer vacation outside the United States and either they don't have passports or they have expired passports, best case scenario is you're flying to Seattle first because that's the closest location to Alaska where you can appear in person to get those passports. Problem is, there's no appointments available in Seattle, and there hasn't been one available since I started looking. In fact, the next two closest facilities are in California, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. No appointments there either. So realistically, the only way somebody in Alaska is going to go to Europe this summer with a kid who needs a passport is if they fly to Honolulu, Hawaii first. So when my wife initially wanted to try to get a new passport because we knew that this passport had expired months and months ago. What we were told is because of the COVID rules, we have to actually wait until two weeks before we fly, right? We have to have proof. We have to have a ticket that, hey, here's a ticket where we're leaving the country. So we have proof that we need a passport. And now we can actually make an appointment because you can't make the appointment well in advance because, you know, there's not that many appointments. So they want to restrict it to people who really need the passport. So you have to say, hey, I need this passport. I'm leaving the country in two weeks and I need to get an appointment. So we thought that, okay, if those are the rules, then obviously we'll be able to get an appointment at that time. Well, two weeks before we're scheduled to leave, my wife goes online. Actually, we forgot. We actually drove down to the passport office in Stamford, Connecticut. It's the only one in Connecticut where you can go. It's the one place in the whole state. And there are some states that don't even have any place to go. But Connecticut has Stamford. So we drove down there. And when we showed up, they said, oh, you need an appointment. You can't come in here to get your passport. You can only come by appointment. So we had to go back home to make an appointment. Except when we got back home and went online, we found out that there were no appointments available on any day between now and the time that we had to leave. So in other words, the government told us we couldn't apply for an appointment until we got to within two weeks of our leaving. And then when we got to that point and tried to get an appointment, all the appointments are booked and we can't find one. So now we're frantically trying all of the other locations throughout the country. The next closest one was in Manhattan, all booked up. The next closest one was up in Boston, three-hour drive, no appointments there. The only appointment that we could find in all of the 50 states was in Honolulu, Hawaii, an 11-hour flight from New York. And I was prepared to get on that plane and fly all the way to Hawaii. And again, not just me, my wife and my kid. And I actually, I needed to take my daughter as well, because her passport expires in about five months. And a lot of times, if your passport expires within six months, they won't let you into a country. So it's usually not a good idea to travel on a passport that's within six months of expiration. So if I wanted to get her a new passport to play it safe, I'd have to buy a ticket for her too. And you know, you're, you're talking, these are pretty expensive tickets to go last minute to Hawaii, right? Especially if you're going to go business or first, because who wants to spend you know, 11 hours in coach round trip. Remember, the only reason we're going to Hawaii is to go to the passport office. And we're probably going to have to stay in a hotel because our the only appointment they had at that time was at 830 in the morning. 
So, I mean, this was going to be a huge ordeal in order to get a passport. But the point about it is, how ridiculous is this? Why can't they open these places up? Everybody's got vaccines. People are wearing masks. The government is spending $6 trillion a year, yet they can't open up the passport offices. I mean, talk about one of the few things that the U.S. government is supposed to do is provide passports. You would think they would be able to do this. The way this is working right now, pretty much if you want to travel out of the country and you've got a minor with an expired passport, you ain't leaving because there is no way that you're going to get an appointment. I mean, the only appointments that have come up, and I've gone on this site for the appointments several times for fun, and I keep checking, and the only place that ever opens up is Hawaii. If you go on, you know, you'll see the appointments go away, and then they'll show up. People cancel them and rebook them, just like we did. We booked an appointment. I actually booked an appointment for Hawaii, but fortunately, the story has a happy ending for me. I was able to get an appointment in New York City the day before we leave. That was the only appointment I was able to snag. We leave on the 22nd. I got an appointment on the 21st in New York City. So not terrible. It's about an hour drive from my house. Uh, but, you know, beats an 11-hour flight to Honolulu. But the only reason that I was able to snag this appointment was because I tweeted out my dilemma just to kind of, A, let people know how crazy it was, but I also was hoping that someone of my 500,000 plus followers, that somebody might have some idea how I can get out of this predicament because nobody else did. And then one of my followers happens to own a company called Easy Passport and Visa, and the guy ends up reaching out to me. He called my office, ended up actually getting my brother's cell phone, texted my brother. My brother showed the text to me. I immediately contacted the guy and he said, hey, don't go to Hawaii. I can get you an appointment in New York. I've got, you know, he's got some kind of computer and they're constantly refreshing, refreshing in a much more efficient way than I was. And he assured me, don't worry, I got you covered. I will get you an appointment in New York. I may even be able to get you Stanford. I don't know, but I think I can definitely get you New York. I really want to help you out. I'll do this for you. I've been a follower for a long time and it really pleases me to be able to do this for you. And he was able to do it. Dave, thanks a lot. I owe you big time. I mean, maybe this, you know, this is a, a free commercial uh, for your company. I mean, I, I doubt he can do this for everybody, but I looked over his website. Uh, it seems like a very reasonable cost to pay for the services he provides, certainly if he can actually get you an appointment. But I had a long conversation with him about this dilemma, and he said, yes, this is a disaster all over the country. People cannot get passports. And let's assume I actually had to fly to Hawaii, right? What does that do to my cost of going to Europe? I mean, none of that would go into the CPI, right? Not only did I have to buy tickets to Switzerland, but in order to go to Switzerland, I had to buy tickets to Hawaii and fly over there and pay all that money to get my passport. I mean, so the cost of traveling to Europe now, if you have to fly to Hawaii first, I mean, it's off the charts, right? So prices are really, really going up much, much faster than what the government is indicating. But this is all ridiculous. 
Why can't they open up these passport offices? I mean, restaurants are opening up. Theaters are opening up. Why can't the government bring these workers back on the job? And at a minimum, at an absolute minimum, if they are not going to reopen these passport locations so that people actually have a way of getting a passport in person, then waive the in-person requirement until you open these locations back up. Allow people to get passports through the mail. Although even then I've read, you know, it's taking people uh, months and months even to get them through the mail because there's such a big backlog now. So even if you could do it through the mail, you may not be able to get it in time. But it's impossible if you have to go to a physical location by appointment and there are no appointments. But this is an example of how inefficient government is. Anything that the government does, the government screws up. And to the extent that we give the government more power, then the whole economy is going to be run like the passport office. 